about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Good evening. I'll let Caleb adjust the volume so it doesn't sound too uh, overwhelming. Um, If you're new or visiting, uh, just can I add my welcome to Caitlin's? It's really good uh, to to see you here this evening. We hope you have a great night. Um, You won't be surprised to see me without a beard. Uh, Everybody else will. I I became Mario for uh, the Kids Pupil Free Day tomorrow. But uh, because it looks awesome, it might stay for a while, so we'll see. Hey, uh, if you're new as well, you might be new to saying the Psalms in church. Um, I just uh, thank you, Caitlin, for taking us to Psalm 32 there. Isn't it wonderful how, you know, sometimes you start to hear the Psalm and you're like, oh, yeah, psalm things, and then, and then you'll hear, uh, uh, for me, I hear a phrase or a, a few words, and they, they're just incredibly powerful in the context uh, give me an image to think, and there's David speaking of how those who trust in the Lord <clears throat> and come to him and confess their sin, the mighty waters will not reach them. And I think he's not just thinking about actual waters, he's thinking about just the overwhelming torrents of life and all the things uh, that were challenging him. So thank you, Caitlin, for, and thank you, God, for the Psalms. Well, today we begin a new sermon series, which uh, we've called Prayer and the God Who Hears It. The basic aim of this sermon series is to uh, take some time at the beginning of the year to think about and grow in prayer. I wonder how you react to the idea of a series on prayer. A few of you will think, yes, finally, this is exactly what we need. There are some kind of mighty prayers uh, in our church, and I'm incredibly grateful for them. Um, But others will have a different reaction. Uh, Some of us will be conscious, actually, of our own lack of prayer, uh, the difficulty we have praying. Some of us will secretly feel a bit embarrassed that, if we're honest, we don't really know how to do it. Some of us may feel pretty uninspired by the idea of a series on prayer. Is this going to be a bit, well, boring? What about the community around us, do you think? How do you think they would react to the idea of a series of talks and discussions on prayer? You know, and maybe friends or colleagues at work, if you want to think about them. You know, I reckon a lot of people would actually be quite interested because a lot of people are quite open to and interested in spirituality. Spiritual practices, meditation, forms of yoga, different kinds of retreat, these things are in, in a way that I don't think they were when I was growing up. People around here are not very religious, definitely. Not not a very religious place, but often they do think of themselves as spiritual. And so talking about prayer might be interesting to them. I mean, prayer can seem very religious, and then, you know, maybe not, but it can also spill out of that into just a kind of spiritual practice that might be 
a bit more interesting. Because there is a hunger in a lot of people for spiritual meaning and substance, for them to be able to understand and, and access somehow a dimension of life beyond the ordinary surface, the mundane. It would be interesting, wouldn't it, if it turned out that the community around us was more interested in a series on prayer than we were at church. Well, it's my hope that as a church, over the coming weeks, we will rediscover something of the incredible privilege and joy and just extraordinary thing that, is, that it is to be able to pray. Uh, and the way to begin down that path, I reckon, is to begin not by looking at prayer as such, but turning our eyes towards the one to whom prayer is offered and directed, the God who hears our prayers. Because what makes prayer lifeless above all is when we forget who it is to whom we pray. And, and what an extraordinary thing it is to be able to approach his throne. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to first turn our eyes for the, this week and, and uh, next week as well, and the week after, I think, to, to the one it is who hears our prayers. And we're going to begin with the story of Isaiah's vision of God in the temple. Um, I love this text. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I, I think it was year 11, I think it was, I was asked to read this passage that Kirsten just read at a big school chapel, and I actually prepared it, and I read it a number of times, and something about this experience, I think it was just this person having this kind of transformative experience of God, something about it captured me and stayed with me. You see, this experience was, was totally foundational for the prophet Isaiah. It was the moment that he became a prophet. But this doesn't just record something of historical interest, a, a thing that happened to Isaiah that's, that's interesting. It, it also is relevant to us because it shows us what it is like in certain ways for us to come before God too. It shows us what God is like. We're shown three things here. And this is where we're going in this sermon, the outlines in your sheets as well if you want it. First, we're shown something of the majesty of God. Second, we're shown something of the danger of God. And finally, we're shown something of the awesome grace of God. Okay, well first then, the majesty of God. The year is 740 BC. We're pretty confident about the date actually because we can cross-reference it with various things. It is the year that King Uzziah of Judah died. He has another name, Azariah, two names, and the story is in 2 Kings 15, if you want to read a bit more about him. Uzziah's reign had been long, 52 years, and it was a prosperous time for Israel, but towards the end of it, the international situation had become unsettled and a bit menacing, actually. The, the power of Assyria had grown in the east and started to kind of flex its muscles. Uzziah's death probably had a kind of momentous feel to it, as if it was a moment of transition, the end of an era, a step into an uncertain and more dangerous future. It probably felt a little bit like the death of Queen Elizabeth felt to some people. 
probably more so. And in that year, the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah has this experience that changes his life. Here it is, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, Isaiah knows here that he is seeing God somehow. But of course, how exactly this works is hard to say because it says that the train of his robe, which, which is just the bit at the back, or the word could even mean the hem of his robe, so just the little bit at the end, like the very bottom of your, your trousers, that fills the temple where he is. So this is an immense figure, and it's not exactly clear how Isaiah can see this vision, but he is seeing it, and he sees the Lord, he says, high and exalted and seated on a throne, utterly, completely magnificent, majestic. We're meant to imagine Isaiah looking up to untold heights at a presence that towers over him. And the Lord is surrounded by angelic creatures of some time, verse 2, of some kind, verse 2. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. What are seraphim? Well, the Hebrew word simply means burning ones. Perhaps they were like living flames of fire. They have those six wings somehow. And with two they fly, and with the others they cover their faces and their feet. We don't know exactly why. It might be probably their faces because they're not worthy to look upon the Lord. And perhaps their feet to show that they will go wherever the Lord bids them. Uh, But it's hard to say. And they are calling to one another that the Lord is holy, holy, holy. Angels are often portrayed in ways that are, frankly, ridiculous. Think of the angels that people put, and there's some, this is new and old, you know, there's some art here, there's some new things. Think of the angels that people put on Christmas trees. Did anybody put on their Christmas tree an immense flaming fire with six wings. It wouldn't work very well, even but as a model, I don't know. Just register how different what Isaiah sees is here. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. This must have been utterly terrifying. How quickly our, idea about, our ideas about God shrink down to a more manageable size. How easily we are drawn to thinking of God and of spiritual reality as something we can, we can get our head around, something we can understand and control, and some, something we say that we can make part of our lives, something to work on, an aspect of life we want to give a bit more attention to this year. What we need to be reminded of here by Isaiah's experience is the, just the overwhelming 
reality and majesty of the Lord. There is a spiritual realm, friends, a spiritual reality, and people are right to be interested in it. But it's not something we can control, something even slightly within our power. It is not a side of life or an aspect of our experience. No, it is the utter awesome reality of God. At the end of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John tells us of a similar experience. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. Earth and heaven fled from his presence. Have you forgotten the majesty of God, friends? This is the first piece of a Christian spirituality. To be humbled as we register something of, as we get just even a tiny glimpse of the majesty of God. And I think this is the first thing for us to register too as we begin to think about prayer. The utter transcendence and majesty of the high and holy one, the Lord. What a thing to think. What a thing to think that we might be able to come before him, to speak intimately with him, to ask him things, to ask him maybe to help us with some work that we're doing or, or to get a parking spot. Earth and heaven fled from his presence. But can we come before him, actually? Can we? Because... Isaiah's reaction, Isaiah's reaction when he comes before the Lord is one of despair. Verse 5, he says, Woe to me. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Let's feel the weight of this moment. Isaiah's reaction to seeing God, to having his eyes opened to spiritual reality, his reaction is one of horror. He is sure he's lost. Woe to me, I am ruined. This is an uncomfortable moment for us. Because as a culture, we're very into affirmation. We like people to be affirmed about who they are. We don't like to hear people talk about themselves negatively. Woe to me, I'm ruined. That's, that's pretty unhealthy self-talk, isn't it? And when it comes to spirituality, we, we assume, I think, that spirituality, if it's anything, it should be affirming. Spirituality is good if it's good for you. You've probably heard people say this. When I tell people, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian or a minister, and they have no idea what to do with that. And they say, oh, that's good, that's great for you. That's, that's, that's an interesting comment. Interesting partly because this moment messes that up completely. It doesn't fit with that at all. The reality and majesty of God makes Isaiah despair for his life. And why, why? What Isaiah says there is fascinating, isn't it? 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. It seems like this revelation of God's holiness makes one thing in particular stand out as a grievous problem. His speech and the speech of the people around him. It's almost as if he he feels the problem viscerally, like in his body. Unclean, my lips, my lips are unclean and the people around me, their lips are unclean. Now, what does this mean? As I said, I'm sure it's about speech. But what is it that he's worried about exactly? Well, we're not told here, but all through the book of Isaiah, actually, speech is at the heart of God's indictment of his people. Listen to just a few examples. From chapter 3, I'll put them on the screen. Isaiah writes, Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Isaiah chapters 1 to 5, by the way, they're kind of, they come before what happens in chapter 6, but they're the kind of prologue to Isaiah, so it's not in chronological order. That makes sense. So chapter 3, this is Isaiah's prophecy. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. They look on, the look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster on themselves. Well, look at chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Chapter 9. Those who guide this people mislead them, and those who are guided are led astray. For everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks folly. And most horribly, chapter 29, the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. See, what Isaiah confesses in our passage in chapter 6 is that he lives, he sees that he lives among a people just caught up in and carried along by lies by words that reject God and twist the way things are, words that are fake, disingenuous, misleading, and plain stupid. And he just, he just knows that he is very much entangled in this. He might be different in some ways. He is different in a whole range of ways, but he, he's not different enough, not anywhere near. And so he cries, woe to me, I'm ruined. Isn't the same thing true of us? Think about the condition of speech in our time. The lies that are told constantly, habitually. We live in a world of presentation, of spin and appearance A world where what matters is not the truth of words, but what they do, the effect they have. It's a world of constant brand management, constant surfaces. Think too about the ways in which our world proudly trumpets things that, according to the Bible, are just just lies. About what's important in life, about sex and relationships, 
about death and the value of life and the elderly, and above all, about God and what is due to him. Now, we might, we might not like all these things about, about the world around us. We might not agree with them all. Probably none of us agrees with them all. But the problem is we are still very affected by them. We are still shaped by them. Trees are shaped by the soil that they're planted in. Think about your own speech. The things that you say or fail to say. The small lies you tell. Think about the way you present yourself online, at work, maybe at church. Think about what you read and watch. The words and stories that you pay attention to the narratives and ideas you've been pulled into, do you grieve the lies like their deaths? Does hypocrisy and unfaithfulness sicken you? Friends, like Isaiah was, we are entangled in, a, in unclean speech. And that makes God... Deadly. Deadly. Because God is holy, holy, holy. His goodness is complete, utterly simple, and so severe. He is the high and holy one, fire and perfect purity. And we don't see it. We don't see it because we judge things by the standards of the world we're in. We judge by comparison. But that is exactly the problem. That is exactly the way in which we're entangled. And it blinds us to the reality of good and true and how far we have gone from righteousness. The revelation of God's majesty and holiness, it shocks Isaiah here into a kind of horrified awareness of what things are really like, of how things really stand, of what his own speech is really like and what the community he's a part of is really like. And he's disgusted with himself and the muck that he's wading in. And he knows that God's reality is as, is as perilous to him as a bushfire to dry grass. Do you feel the shock at least a little, friends? Do you see some of the ways in which you've become, or, or might, might sort of have become, entangled in the stories and speech of the world around us and started to share its assumptions? Do you feel your own hypocrisies acutely? Do you feel the distance between us and the holy God? Who are we really to speak to the Lord, to approach him? Why not rather say, woe to me, I am ruined. Except Isaiah is not ruined. He's not. He should be, but he isn't. Something different, utterly unexpected happens. Verse 6, then... One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. I don't know why he can hold the coal. coal. Why didn't he just take it out of the altar with his hand? But anyway, 
He's taken it with tongs. He's holding it in his hand, live coal. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Just imagine the terror of this moment. Right? Isaiah, we've just seen, he thinks he's done for. And now this immense burning creature swoops towards him with a burning live coal taken from the altar in his hand. He's going to think, this is the end, right? This is it for me. But suddenly it isn't. Instead, the coal, it touches his mouth. He's frozen with shock. And then the creature tells him, not that he's ruined, but that he is saved. He's saved. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. His lips were, that was where he felt the burden of his sin and unworthiness. And now they are the place at which the cleansing is given to him. Notice as well that it's not that Isaiah discovers that this was, it was all an illusion, right? Isaiah doesn't discover that he was just wrong. He wasn't really guilty. There was never really a problem. That's not what happens. He doesn't find that his, his sense of uncleanness was just a kind of false self-consciousness, a mistake. No, he was guilty. There was a problem. He was a man of unclean lips, unfit to stand before the Lord, but his guilt is taken away. His sin is atoned for, which means the grievance is dealt with, done with. How? Where does this gift, this mercy come from? It's, it's mysterious. The only clue we're given here, I think, is that this coal is taken from the altar in the temple. That kind of points us to how somehow within the way God has chosen to relate to Israel through the temple and its sacrifices, perhaps the way is open for guilt to be removed, sin atoned for, somehow, well, you see, God just is, the holy God just is also the merciful God. It's God who makes this possible. The holy God who is also the merciful God and his holiness is not in conflict with his mercy. It is perfectly one with it. The secret inner depth of God's holiness turns out to be his grace. Later in Isaiah, Perhaps thinking about this moment, the prophet speaks of God like this. He says, this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. But also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. The holy God is the gracious God. And he's not now this and then that, now holy and then gracious. No, he is holy in his grace and gracious in his holiness. He is a consuming fire, this God. But his desire is for that fire to consume 
our sin and our guilt. And so purify rather than destroy. That is the God of the Bible, friends. And do you know, ultimately, this moment, I think the reason it's mysterious is because this moment is a sign, it is a picture, an image of Jesus Christ. Through his life among us, his death and resurrection, and his return to the Father, Jesus Christ is this live coal from the altar. What a weird way to think of Jesus, but it's true. He is the perfect purity of the holy God coming to us, touching us, to save, to make it so that our guilt is taken away and our sin is dealt with, atoned for. Isaiah's experience here of coming into the temple and coming into the presence of God and, and instead of being destroyed, being healed and rescued, that is what God offers the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why we may pray, friends. Why we may approach the throne from which heaven and earth flee with confidence. Because it is a throne of grace of holy mercy. So what else can we do but throw ourselves upon this holy mercy and offer ourselves to its service? This is what happens to Isaiah, I'm sure you noticed. Verse 8, right at the end. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He hears a voice, the voice of God, asking for a volunteer who is willing who will go, and Isaiah is there in a heartbeat. Here am I, send me. Actually, that here am I in the Hebrew is just one word, hineni. He's like, me, 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 I'll do it. He doesn't know what the task is. He doesn't know what it's going to cost and demand, but he cannot do anything else now because he has come to know the holy mercy of God to him. Will you offer yourself as well to whatever the Lord is calling you to? Perhaps to a renewal of your faith and witness. Perhaps to Christian ministry or to the work of mission. Perhaps to a difficult path of obedience that you see set before you that you don't really like but you know God is calling you to. Perhaps to a renewal of service at church in some small or big way. Can I suggest this is a great way, the right way to begin also a renewal of prayer. To begin to pray, not just for parking spots or for God to, you know, Ease up on that rash you get in the evening. I don't get a rash. It's a weird example. Probably spoiled the moment. Do you know what I mean? We pray for all these little things, and that's fine. And the Lord hears. But what if we also 
in the knowledge of the grace shown to us, this holy mercy, what if we also prayed, here am I, send me. To open yourself up before the high and holy one and say, what do you want from me, Lord? Because the Lord does call to us, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Let's pray. Almighty God, you are the high and holy one, perfect in majesty, infinite in purity, majestic in goodness. We praise you, and yet we praise you with fear and trembling, for we know that we are not fit to stand before you. We are a people of unclean lips. And we live among a people of unclean lips. And yet, Lord, we confess with great thanksgiving that you are also the merciful God, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness and grace. And we praise you for this gift of cleansing and atonement you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. Here we are, Lord. Send us. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.